support for the alliance is very strong in, in the US and in Australia. But when you ask younger Americans and Australians, what should we be working on as allies? It's what affects their future. It's, it's climate change. And so we're, we're thrilled to be able to, um, to, to have two of the leading experts on the topic to help us think through the issues um, that we should be um, discussing together as allies. Let me first um, acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. Uh, the University of Sydney, as you all know, stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, and um, we're, 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 we're thrilled tonight to be joined by um, two people with a close connection to the U.S. Studies Center and, um, and the U.S.-Australia Alliance, in addition to their expertise um, on climate. Um, uh, on my far left, um, physically, not politically, um, <laughs> is um, Lachlan Carey. Lachlan is a senior associate at the Colorado-based Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, where he leads work on U.S. regional economic development through clean energy investment. Um, he previously worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where I also spent 15 years before coming here. Um, and uh, most important, he's an alum of the University of Sydney and the U.S. Studies Center program of, uh, of teaching and research. Um, Meg McDonald is a former uh, senior diplomat. She's now a board member uh, of the New South Wales Net Zero Emissions and Clean Energy Board, um, the Foreign Investment Review Board, the FERB, uh, and the Environment Commissioner at Greater Cities Commission uh, for New South Wales. Meg has over 30 years of experience in public uh, and private sector life in Australia and in business as a diplomat and as a, a business leader. Um, Meg and I met each other first when she was DCM, Chargé at the US Embassy in Washington um, some time ago. <laughs> um, and uh, she was a very important uh, figure and had already served at that point as um, Australia's ambassador on uh, on climate change, and so um, brought that agenda uh, with her when she worked in Washington. So I'm going to um, uh, ask both of our um, guests a couple of questions, and we'll open it up, take some questions from the floor, and and see where we go. Um, so um, let me let me uh, actually, I guess you're our honorary American. Lachlan, since you've come from Colorado. Uh, last uh, place I was before I came here, by the way. Just did some good trout fishing and... <laughs> okay, uh, but well, that's where I was born and raised. So um, did not couch trout as big in, in that Washington area as I did in Colorado, though. Um, so let me start with you because you, you're just here back in Sydney. Um, uh, we'll talk about the COP meeting in Egypt, but um, just to focus on the American situation, President Biden has embraced this agenda in a way, of course, President Trump did not. But now you have a Republican-controlled House. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, which is a huge piece of legislation. Just help us get situated first by characterize, ca capturing, if you could, the sort of politics and policy um, trajectory you see right now in the US. Yeah, so I think, to put it simply, I think it's all going according to plan. Um, President Biden came in, they knew they had two years to legislate their agenda. They had the American Rescue Plan, a huge fiscal stimulus, which included a bunch of climate spending. They had the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, also included a bunch of climate spending. Chips and Science Bill, and then finally the Inflation Reduction Act, the big go to Together we're looking at over half a trillion dollars worth of climate spending uh, across those three or four bills. 
And so yes, that's drilling with the T, which um, averages out to about $80 billion a year between now and 2030. So we're talking about really significant numbers here. And uh, so as I say, they had two years to legislate, and then they knew this is what happens in American politics. You get the midterm elections, the House flips. They probably expected the Senate to flip as well. We didn't see that, so that makes a big difference. And so then the remaining two years of this administration is all implementation, implementation, implementation. And that's, that's what they're focused on, and I think that's what they'll think. So Meg, putting on your old DCM hat again and your industry hat, and of course all the commissions you serve on now, looking at where the US is heading, what does this mean for Australia? Are we aligning, are, are we, um, are, are we uh, poised to do more together, um, uh, given the tailwinds now behind the Biden administration's approach to climate? Well, I think it's interesting to hear Lachlan um, describe the, the moment, because in fact, it is very much that moment here in Australia as well, because you've got um, a federal government that's just been elected in the last, in April, come in with a very big agenda on climate and knows that it's really got a lot of catching up to do after 10 years of climate wars, it's even longer, and a very clear determination to um, make the type of, uh, take the sort of domestic action that is necessary without the ability to actually impose a carbon price and do any general um, economic instrument because that has really, that's what- That's off the table now. That's off the table. No one would dare. So um, it's really using all the instruments that we've got and consolidating a lot of the action which had already been taken on the energy front, uh, renewable energy front by a lot of the state governments to actually get Australia, keep the lights on and um, get Australia uh, on the road to um, at being based on renewable energy. So this is the moment where cooperation between the United States and um, a new Australian government probably offers its biggest opportunity um, from a climate change perspective. But I'd also uh, add on that the whole geopolitical um, situation is one which is driving uh, us much more to be thinking about the security of supply chains, particularly in um, the whole renewable energy sector and, re and really thinking about how, how to um, engineer this industrial revolution um, that it will, will be based on a clean energy economy. So that's very much where the, um, the, the federal government is really putting a lot of emphasis with its legislation, its budget and its um, whole industry policy for the next, for the foreseeable future. So it's a great time. But it's not being engineered under the name of climate. It's actually being engineered much more as um, an industrial and economy repositioning. So the geopolitical challenges, the, the war in Ukraine, the supply chain interruptions, OPEC movements, uh, are driving some commentators to say now is not the time for action on climate because energy prices are high and so on and so forth. But what you're saying is actually no, that politically, that actually makes it easier to make the case for secure supply chains and less reliance on imports of oil and gas and so forth? Is and that right? And when you look at um, the, the fact that we have an aging coal fleet, um, we're going to have to replace those um, regardless of cli um, uh, climate needs. And they're actually very expensive. So the um, increase in prices of coal um, and for, on the export market as well as gas has actually driven up the price of um, energy in mm. the market. 
and renewable energy, solar in particular, of which we have an abundance, um, is now the cheapest form of energy that, that we can get. And it's interesting that for, as a, an opportunity for consumers, it's actually put solar on your roof mm -hmm. and you've actually um, developed your own supply chain. And so that's really a lot of what is driving uh, a lot of the policy in Australia, thinking about that for the long term. And it deals with this whole energy security yeah. issue and decarbonises and really renews the economy. I was promised a lot more solar than I've gotten since I arrived in August. There's been a lot of rain, <laughs> but your point is exactly right. Um, Australia has a, uh, has a, a, a unique uh, benefit in that regard. Lachlan, where, where do you see the politics on the inner, what, what, what I think will be the rub between the Republican Congress and the administration, which is the nature of the energy transition? You know, the, the, the leadership of the key committees in the House, uh, the relevant committees of jurisdiction um, that touch on climate and energy and so forth, they're not climate deniers for the most part, but they are advocates of uh, gas and oil and coal because they argue that, you know, renewables can't provide the, the baseload that, you know, if you take all of the re renewable energy available in the world today, it gets you a couple days of, 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 of energy production, so on and so forth. So where do you think the debate is going? It's not about climate denialism that you had with the Trump administration versus climate urgency. It's really about the nature of the transition. How do you think that debate will unfold in the US? And maybe, Meg, you can tell us how you think it'll unfold in Australia, and we'll see if there's an alignment. Yeah, well, I think in both countries, we're seeing energy costs being the focal point. Mm -hmm. Right, so uh, you had the Albanese government come in and saying we're going to deliver $275 savings on an electricity bill. That was, you know, uh, possibly a, a political liability now, but at the time a very successful message. Uh, you know, it wasn't an accident that they called it the Inflation Reduction Act, not the Carbon Mitigation Act or something. It was specifically about lowering people's energy bills. And you look at the policy provisions in there, it's tax credits for, uh, you know, renovating your home. It's tax credits for building renewable energy, it's tax credits for making hydrogen cheaper, it's all directed at lowering energy costs and that's a big political win. And we saw that in the midterm elections. I mean this was a midterm election uh, without any backlash on the most historic piece of climate legislation in US arguably world history. Yeah. I mean this is only 12 years after the Waxman-Markey bill and the Tea Party revolution that spent over a billion dollars in advertising trying to slam the Obama administration for uh, its, its climate policies. Uh, the last uh, look that I've seen, it was exactly zero dollars spent on attack ads on the climate provisions yeah. in the Inflation Reduction Act. That is an unbelievable shift in a country that, as you say, has typically been marked by climate denialism, uh, you know, or, or at least climate policy delay. So I think the politics have really shifted here. And another key reason for that is um, you know, Bloomberg did an amazing analysis on the Inflation Reduction Act and the benefits of how they'll be distributed within the US. And it's overwhelmingly within red states. And so I think that makes a huge difference. Mm. So just today, we saw First Solar, which is America's largest solar manufacturing company, announce its, uh, its largest expansion in its history. Where's it doing it? It's doing it in Alabama, a deep red state. And so that totally changes the politics when you see that there are these tangible economic mm. benefits. Uh, you know, that's jobs, that's capex, that's potentially exports. That totally changes you know, the way that you frame and think about climate change. In terms of the actual effects of this midterm uh, election, you know, I think there's still some uncertainty in the Senate, which will actually make quite a difference. Mm -hmm. right? the, the Georgia runoff, the difference between 51 and 50 seats, makes a big difference on you know, who uh, heads up these who, committees. Who chairs committees, yeah. Uh, how yeah. easy it is to pass judicial mm -hmm. and, uh, and nominees, which are still quite a few in mm -hmm. sort of climate-relevant spaces. So that's one to watch. 
And then in the House, as I say, I don't think they're going to try and roll back uh, no. the IRA. Um, but what we are going to see is a lot of oversight. You know, they're going to look out for their next cylinder, which for those, uh, those of you who might remember, was a, uh, a large loan to a solar manufacturing company during the Obama administration. It went belly up. Republicans had a field day. Fox News had a field day about this is, you know, wasted government money, et cetera, et cetera. Don't mind the $500 million loan they made to Tesla, who then went on to become the world's most valuable car company. But Solyndra failed, and so they're going to be looking for the next version of Solyndra. So expect to see Jigashar, the head of the LPO, up there, um, uh, you know, in House and Senate uh, committee hearings, and expect to see um, uh, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission as well. I think they're really going to attack uh, the, the Biden administration on climate-related financial regulation. Yeah, and it, it, another area where we might um, anticipate some uh, pressure on the Biden administration is the debate over LNG and so forth. I mean, John Kerry's position on LNG is not the Secretary of Energy's position on LNG. There are some clear um, inconsistencies within the Biden administration. What, what do you think the future is, uh, getting right into the personnel and gossip of you know, former Secretary of State John Kerry and the whole narrative the administration takes out on things like LNG or coal. Well, I think yeah. the administration's been pragmatic and that's been, been a really useful solution politically. So if you think about its use of the strategic petroleum reserve, for instance, to try and make a difference on gas prices, it's shown that on the one hand, it's willing to pursue this so-called all of the above energy policy and still try and expand oil and gas production, while on the other hand, you know, uh, really trying to, to push uh, renewable energy forward as well. So yeah. I think they'll continue to, to do a bit of on the one hand and on the other. And, um, you know, that might be a little hypocritical, um, but I think that's, you know, as I say, when the key issue is energy costs, it's the only way to deal with it. Megan, in the U.S., one other factor that may be behind this, in addition to the important um, electoral politics of who, which red states benefited from the, from the IRA, um, uh, behind it may also be the role of states and the private sector in embracing uh, uh, climate uh, uh, friendly policies and uh, business practices. Um, uh, is that also the trend in Australia? Do you see, you do a lot with the New South Wales government, there's a lot of the innovation happening at the state level and by firms because of, you know, some level of paralysis in both our countries at the federal level? That's exactly what's happened. Uh, as I said, nearly every state has had to um, really take much more accountability for and spend much more money um, budget-wise to actually drive energy policy because of the um, history, in fact, that um, the, it's state governments that actually have the uh, legislative responsibility for, for provision of energy. And actually, traditionally, um, the um, energy generation was a state-owned business, actually. Um, and it was sold off in um, different ways. But the states that have um, both retained that um, ownership, Queensland and Western Australia, are actually moving fastest yeah. to decarbonise the um, energy gen generation um, because economically it actually um, suits them. But equally, both of them have a very rich resource states, um, Western Australia gas, um, Queensland coal um, and gas. So um, they're really able to 
play both sides of the fence, really, um, yeah. in maximising the opportunity from the transition. And in Victoria, we've actually got a situation where the state is renationalising um, uh, to actually bring back state control um, of uh, generation and assets. So it, there's a lot of action, but but it's been driven out of necessity yep. um, because of the um, age of the fleets and also the heavy carbon um, uh, intensity of the generation system and the costs that that, that imposes. But that's also driven by industry. And in fact, very large industry is um, demanding renewable energy and setting it up, um, uh, uh, the, the, the opportunities, um, and actually um, funding their own sources of renewable energy. So, so some of the very big users are actually um, doing PPAs that actually act as the financing basis for some very, very large um, renewable energy um, developments and they have actually accelerated the, the pace of that large scale and also helped drive down the costs for the rest of consumers. So I don't see um, that, that that's actually going to be reversible by any future government because of the way in which um, the, the, the prices have gone. Now. Here in New South Wales, uh, where I spend a lot of my time, the, the big issue is what to replace state income with um, when the coal royalties go. So it's a very it's an echo of what is the, the case in individual states in um, the United States as well, which is um, one of the reasons why I see the sort of practical cooperation stage that we're moving into in terms of uh, how to engineer this um, shift to uh, low emissions economy and also engineer it um, on the basis of industry, there's so much that both countries have got to learn from the, the experience. Up till now, we've been very busy setting up the frameworks and um, getting clear on the tracks to doing it. Now it's actually a race to do it as fast as we can and not actually hit roadblocks. I don't know whether Lachlan Yeah, I completely agree. And I think this is this is where global climate cooperation is is heading, uh, you know, much more pragmatic, much more, um, you know, focused on problem solving in individual sectors. And so, you know, climate cooperation for 30 years has been based around how do we find global consensus on this collective action problem. And that was fundamentally the wrong way of looking at it. Mm. It's really an issue of distributive conflicts in uh, in sort of local political economies. So how do you pay off uh, the quote unquote losers of the energy transition, like coal workers, coal miners, and how do you subsidize the quote unquote winners, uh, you know, green hydrogen, renewable electricity, and so forth. And so focusing industry by industry, what are the barriers, what are the political um, sort of constraints here, and, and finding ways of, uh, of really solving this problem. Because ultimately, trying to find global consensus is, is a surefire way to a lowest common denominator solution, right? And we've seen that time and time again. I don't expect to see anything particularly earth-chattering coming, coming out of this uh, COP27 this week. Instead, what we're seeing are some really interesting initiatives on the sideline, you know, with industry partners on a sectoral basis, whether it's in, you know, green shipping corridors or hydrogen uh, alliances or the Glasgow Net Zero Financial Alliance, now, these are some really interesting practical initiatives that I think are going to make a difference. And very few, if any of them, 
are directly tied to that uh, COP apparatus. So I have to give Meg a chance to respond because you spent part of your career as the climate ambassador seeking that very global consensus. Um, do, do you agree? Do you think that's just not the future? Um, or, or should we look to the COP27 and future COPs with higher ambition than we did, well, than we did in Egypt? Well, one of the big things that um, Australia is currently preoccupied with is actually securing the right to host the next COP. Yes. Um, We're a co-host with our our Pacific partners. And so we'll be hearing a lot about what the benefits of COPs will be. (laughs) Um, uh, Lachlan and I were just chatting, uh, you know, as as a veteran of COPs, I will be happy never to see another one. Um, <laughs> but um, the, I think they have a place because of the way in which they bring focus not only on um, the pace that w- we are actually making the change and, you know, 1.5 really is a big driver, yeah. um, even though we've, we're not going to um, actually hit that. And actually that is one of the big um, issues at COP. How do we actually stand up and say, no, we're not going to make that 1.5 that um, we pledged to at Paris. But actually that sort of pressure, I think, is really quite important. Um, and it's very important that that global um, account- joint accountability is maintained because there are a bunch of countries still that are actually not really pulling their weight. And um, that sort of global pressure, I, I think, is important, but even more important is that it's not just governments, but it's actually all these private sector, all the other actors are actually uh, um, there. Because I actually think that it's finance um, markets which will actually drive this fastest um, because of the um, liabilities that uh, countries that that haven't decarbonised yeah. or actually have um, uh, a, a laggard. Um, we'll actually face in being able to really um, raise capital and um, uh, achieve uh, the sorts of things that they um, are looking for economically. So, um, yes, I see that there's a real um, opportunity there to keep that um, uh, drive for global action. But at the same time, it's these individual sectoral um, collaborations that also COPs seem to drive to that are really, really important and highlight what's possible. I think one area where I see still that there are kind of big challenges are where we've got new technologies like hydrogen, the um, regulatory environment and the receiving environment for um, enabling these new areas of trade are actually um, not proceeding as fast as I think necessary that the market needs and so that is an area where I think more opportunity for, for multilateral action to actually get those enabling um, environments for that, those sorts of trades to happen but also um, being able to um, really highlight where there are big technology breakthroughs and that's one thing that the IRA does is is actually really targets a whole lot of new technologies yeah. that um, are probably sitting there, but really need the kind of um, stimulus that this is going to provide to actually commercialise them on, on, a, uh, on a big scale. And that sort of technology race, I think, is really uh, one of the things that, again, that I feel is unstoppable, particularly when you've got the kind of stimulus that the IRA um, holds. But then there becomes big equity issues about 
how then other countries get access to uh, can, can get in to be part of that production chain. Yeah, I think that's right. But you know, these the technologies uh, are global. At the end, at the end of the day, you know, you look at what what China's done. Ultimately, it was pretty self-interested. Let's build up a global manufacturing um, base in solar, in batteries, in electric vehicles, and we've seen the cost in solar decline by eighty-nine percent over the last ten years. Lithium-ion batteries by just a, just as much. And the difference between renewable energy and fossil fuels is that the more renewable energy you manufacture, the cheaper it gets. Yeah. Whereas fossil fuels, it can depend on the whims of a dictator or, or you know, geopolitical disputes. And so for solar, for every doubling of global cumulative capacity, we see the average cost fall by about 24%. It's about 19% in lithium ion batteries. And we're expected to continue to see that exponential decline in the cost of these technologies. And so as we see in the you know, IRA, uh, the amount of green hydrogen that's produced in that country is about to explode. Uh, the amount of extra battery manufacturing as they start to prop up a new EV manufacturing industry. Um, you know, so as we see the production of these technologies increase, that technology goes down. Australia stands to benefit from that as the price of our solar panels on our roofs continues to go down, as EVs become more cost competitive with internal combustion engines, as hydrogen becomes a potential source of, you know, future energy exports for this country. And and I think, you know, um, those global spillovers are really going to be felt. And ultimately, the benefits of that, I think, are, are, are far, far going to outweigh, you know, some of the perhaps protectionist concerns that, that um, particularly the Europeans have on uh, the IRA as well. Except, maybe, <laughs> Um, that those protectionist concerns in the geopolitics are weighing more heavily uh, and will weigh more heavily uh, in future. So yes, China built an impressive solar industry. If you talk to a lot of solar panel uh, former executives in Massachusetts and Texas, they'll say, yeah, they built it by stealing our intellectual property and dumping in our market. Um, if you look at COP27, you know, one of the things that's significantly different from Paris or previous COPs is the geopolitical tension with China and the emissions targets and policies that Beijing is implementing. So we have a big problem with China. It's the largest emitter. It's also the most recalcitrant right now of the major powers. India is racing for that second place spot. So what do you do about the geopolitics? You can start with you, Lachlan, and then, and then Meg. Yeah, so I think we're starting to see um, different ways of using the, the regional frameworks, the regional multilateral alliances as sort of ballast against China and using climate as a really sort of uh, central piece of those, those frameworks. So the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, for example, is the Biden administration's attempt to sort of um, find a new version of the, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Except um, you're not allowed to say TPP if you're in the Biden administration. Of, of course not. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think it is, it is a recognition that for a lot of people, the Free trade, free trade, free trade orthodoxy didn't didn't work. You know, we saw uh, communities across the U.S. deindustrialize uh, with all sorts of negative consequences. Uh, you know, for these communities, not least of which is is the sudden support for for Trump, yeah. um, and uh, you know, not to mention the supply chain resiliency issues and and the challenges we face in in dealing with climate change. And so, I think it's really positive to see. I think they call it the clean energy economy as pillar number three of yeah. uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. You're also seeing climate touted as the the potentially the the centerpiece of the quad. You, you know, I 
would be surprised if we if we end up at that point. But to see a, an alliance that was set up, you know, fundamentally as a sort of bulwark against China in the region, really embrace uh, climate cooperation as as a source of of soft power and and ballast to to really strengthen those relationships, I think is really really important. But at the same time, China does still if not be at the table, at least not be working actively against us. You know, they, they control well over 90% of market share in most uh, components of the solar manufacturing supply chain, for example. Um, it's even higher in certain rare earth minerals that go into lithium ion batteries. And so we're a long way away from being at a point where Australia, Canada, the US can, can produce enough of these components ourselves to deploy at the scale and speed that we need to meet our climate goals. And so we need to make sure that we avoid the significant tensions uh, that, that might lead to those supply chain resiliency issues. Um, and so I think that's where the G20, for example, is a really uh, important for us, forum for us to continue to be engaged. I think the G20 has suffered from a decade of, of sort of listlessness and uh, and not really knowing what its what its purpose was after the global financial crisis. And I think climate change presents a real opportunity to be the sort of galvanizing force that, uh, you know, G the G20 is the world's largest economies, which means by and large, it's the world's largest polluters. So it, it makes a lot of sense uh, for that to be the sort of locus of, of climate action in the future as well. Reminds me of the Groucho Marx line, any, any, any club that would accept me, I wouldn't want to join in the world's <laughs> largest uh, emitters. Um, I mean, the G20 was successful initially because it was about preventing competitive devaluation of currencies and protectionism. So maybe if there's a role for G20 with, with climate, it's that. It's, prevent, it's preventing bad um, uh, 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 competitive um, uh, and predatory uh, and protectionist approaches. What about China? What do you think? Um, well, in terms of uh, international cooperation, I, I think I, I was very struck by a speech that um, the Energy and Climate Minister Bowen gave to CSIS mm -hmm. about our, our old home yes, right? <laughs> in September, which was a very pointed um, description of where the strategy was for Australia, mm -hmm. which was it's not healthy for us to have some of the major supply chain concentrations that we've near monopolies, he called them, um, for, for us. And that the one thing that our um, recent history has taught us is that if we need to expand the, these industries at the pace that we have to, um, then it pays to have um, diverse and, um, and robust supply chains from many sources. So I think that that was a very, very clear message. Yeah not delivered by a foreign minister mm. or a prime minister, but actually for, mm. under the guise of a climate. So, and if you, again, look at what the Australian, new Australian government has done, it's very quickly moved to put in these bilateral um, cleaner energy agreements um, are built around securing supply chains with Japan, for instance. It's about reassuring Japan that we're going to continue to provide gas, but it's also about the um, supply chains for um, rare earths and um, battery materials and really beginning that sort of investment um, process. And we're also doing the same with India. So it's um, a very interesting time to be seeing how this sort of network of bilateral alliances mm -hmm. as well as the, um, the um, 
G4. So what do we um, what do we take from that? That this is not vocally about China, yeah. but it's actually about a, a very learning from the experience of Australia's recent past that our um, can't be left open to coercion yep. in a way and, and, yeah. and left vulnerable around key supply chains where we think we would uh, we can be actually a major player because we've got a lot of those assets. When, when, the, when the, the Japanese and the, and the Chinese clashed uh, 10 years ago now in the East China Sea over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands and, um, and rare earth metal exports to Japan were embargoed in violation of the WTO, uh, the Japanese government for, went from about 90% to 50% dependence pretty quickly. But getting from 50% to zero is almost impossible. <laughs> it's a very tough problem, but clearly, as Minister Bowen said in Washington, as you hear in the Quad, even in AUKUS, I mean, there's this, you know, this focus on secure supply chains. And it's going to be uh, tough. The debate about China and climate has been a little bit stupid for a long time. You know, the progressive left for a long time was saying, look, um, climate is so existential that um, it will allow us to transform relations with China. It will crowd out all geopolitical uh, tensions or tensions over human rights because we all have to live on the planet. And you know, at the beginning of the Obama administration, many in the believe that and had a very unsuccessful COP meeting with the Chinese as a result because that's not how Beijing saw it. Um, on the other hand, you have on the right this argument, we can't trust China on anything. And so let's not work with them at all on climate. And somewhere in the middle, we're going to find what that sweet spot is. Because as you point out, both of you, we're not, we cannot leave ourselves in the Australian or American political system, Japan, open to coercion. But we can't ignore China because of the points that Lachlan makes. And I think we're, we're all kind of trying to figure out where that, where that sweet spot is. But it's a, there's a lot of opportunity for um, cooperation mm -hmm. with China but both multilaterally, but also in the other forums like um, uh, G20, etc. So there, there are opportunities, and we should be using those, but not actually leaving ourselves hostage. And maybe the answer is what we were discussing earlier, that change in the politics of, of, of climate policy did not happen at the federal level in either of our countries. It was states, it was local communities, it was NGOs, it was business. And maybe that's how we ought to be thinking about engaging China on climate. Um, not at the, you know, you take it to a Xi-Biden meeting and Xi Jinping's response is going to be, great, stop selling arms to Taiwan. It immediately gets caught in other geopolitical issues. But maybe if we can do more at the firm, grassroots, state-to-state -state level, practical, practical things, we'll, yeah. we'll make progress as well. What, I also think there's an important human rights uh, component to this that's often overlooked. I mean, pretty much all the world's polysilicon gets processed in the province of Xinjiang, yeah. uh, you know, with arguably the use of slave labor and overwhelmingly in coal-fired power plants. So the polysilicon we're using as renewable energy, uh, you know, is, is pretty carbon intensive. And so the quicker we can move away from that, um, I think 67% of the world's cobalt production, which goes into lithium ion batteries, is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which uses child slave labor. Australia has about 20% uh, of the world's cobalt reserves. I think we currently only produce something around the order of 4% uh, of, of annual production. So by ramping up cobalt mining and cobalt processing, 
in this country, we're, we're not just contributing to the resiliency of, of uh, the supply chains in clean energy technologies that we're going to need in order to decarbonize, but we're also potentially dis displacing child slave labor and sort of contributing in, in that front as well. So I do think there are multiple sort of points here where it's pretty clear that, um, as I say, this sort of, uh, you know, hyper-globalization that has defined the last sort of quarter century you know, the, we need to move beyond that and, and be thinking about supply chain fragility, decarbonization, human rights, and a broader set of concerns here. We're about to announce, uh, just a little advertising at the Study Center next week, we're going to announce a new uh, program and a new director and, and expert on economic security looking at supply chain and energy security. So stay tuned. I want to come back to the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. The most significant investment in climate by the US federal government probably ever, <laughs> um, and the biggest piece of industrial policy ever, <laughs> um, since World War II at least. And I've heard two things here in Australia about it. Um, on the one hand, that was incredibly impressive. And this really is a model for the world. Who would have thunk that the United States would do this for how to get the federal government innovating and well, supporting innovation? Um, but I've also heard people say, this is a problem for America's friends and allies. This is industrial policy. This is federal subsidies. This is going to get the best and brightest going not to Australia or Japan or, or Canada, but to, to the U.S. So there's, there is still a competitive, if not zero-sum, dimension to climate. Are you worried about this, Meg? I'll start with you in an Australian context. Or, I mean, Australia does not have a similar approach yet, but are you worried that this will have, a, you know, competitiveness? There, um, there is quite a lot of concern but in, in different areas to that that I've seen um, from the European there's now like a formal dialogue mm -hmm. between um, the US and EU around uh, dealing with some of the um, uh, competitiveness concerns where it really um, is of I think concern for Australia is as a producer of hydrogen for instance mm -hmm. and things like sustainable aviation fuels um, whether hydrogen based or other um, where, where there are those sorts of explicit subsidies, it really changes the um, or raises the bar for mm. Australian producers, and, and we know that we we have some very big investments going in in hydrogen um, across the country, um, and big investments in the technology. So um, that the, those are areas of mm. of concern, um, but it, it, again, it's a question of how fast we can actually. Um, provide that niche for ourselves and, you know, find the, our, our part in this new economy. But it, it is causing investors to um, really think um, long and hard about what those impacts are going to be. And that's where there could be some investment diversion. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's beneficiaries of the kind of technology breakthroughs that Lachlan was talking about. There's a lot of um, optimism that that's going to force some uh, the the technology pace of technology change, and we will will actually be benefited. So it's, it's virtuous that. competition at the end of the day. You think? It, it, it's a mixed. Bag. Okay. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, depending on where you are yeah. in the in the um, production chain, but I do think that on a skills basis, um, it, it is going to actually draw a lot of. Um, skills immediately into the into the United States but that becomes something that 
it should be a matter for urgency already for mm -hmm. all of us because mm -hmm. it's a com complete skills race anyway uh, for all of the areas where we're trying to, to decarbonise and re-engineer our economy for a low carbon base. What's your take? Yeah, so first I'd say we've always had an industrial policy, both Australia and the US, right? In, in the US, its industrial policy was to promote healthcare and, and the financial sector for the last quarter century. In Australia, it's been to promote mining and the housing sector for the last, you know, however long. And so, you know, it's just been that we decided that manufacturing was an area where we didn't want tariffs because we wanted to see the price of our TVs go down. And so we let China produce all our TVs for a while. Well, eventually that's come back to bite us and we're starting to, to correct. So on the one hand, I think industrial policy, you know, it's always been sort of part of how we, we've, um, you know, driven our economies in, in the sort of right direction. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is, you know, this worked politically. I mean, just to step back for a second, as I was saying earlier, this is a country that not that long ago, you know, half the Congress outright denied the existence of climate change. And somehow in a 50-50 Senate with a bare house majority, and the Biden administration managed to pass $369 billion worth of climate spending. The best estimates we have suggest that that's going to lead to about a gigaton a year of uh, lower uh, CO2 emissions by 2030. It's about a 42% reduction in US emissions compared to 2005 levels. A gigaton, to put that in perspective, is larger than the annual emissions of all but five countries on the planet. So by 2030, the, the US will be eliminating whole countries worth of emissions thanks to this bill. And I think the industrial policy elements of it were critical to its success, yeah. right? And so that's the key thing here that ultimately industrial policy is, is political pragmatism. It's about saying, how do we sell climate change to voters? Well, you sell it by promising them jobs. You sell it by promising them lower energy costs. And fundamentally to do that, you need to use the tools of industrial policy. And so those tools are identifying strategic sectors, creating frameworks and incentives uh, to you know, move those sectors towards targeted goals, and then allowing the private sector to really do the experimentation, the innovation, uh, you know, do its thing in a sort of capitalist competitive way uh, to, as I say, drive down the costs, expand production, um, and, and ultimately you know, invest in these clean energy technologies. And that's what we've seen in, in the IRA. Um, and so I think a lot of countries are gonna learn from this experience. Mm -hmm. I think Australia definitely should learn from this mm -hmm. experience. Um, you know, because we have very similar political environments. We both rely quite a lot on fossil fuel production uh, in our economies, much more than our European counterparts, for example, uh, who are overwhelmingly fossil fuel importers. So that totally changes the, the political economy of the situation. Um, and so I think, you know, this element of how do we reshore manufacturing jobs? You're already seeing Labor's, you know, $15 billion national reconstruction fund. That's an industrial policy fund is what that is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think Australia's lear learning these lessons, the way the Albanese, uh, you know, campaign was run was very similar to the way that the Biden campaign was run on the issue of climate. Biden on the campaign trail like to say, when I think of climate, I think of jobs, 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 right? That was how he was highlighting this. That was how he was selling this. And so, as I say, I think Australia is absolutely learning those lessons. That's fascinating. And I think in both countries, it's not just the, the, the Democratic Party and the Labor Party, it's the Republicans and the Liberal Party are also changing in really profound ways on this issue. The, the, as you pointed out, there was no attack on the IRA in the midterms. There were other bigger targets, of course, but still, it tells you something. The other big piece of industrial policy that passed in the Congress was the Chips and Science Act. Mm -hmm. 
primarily written by a Republican, Todd Young of Indiana, a Reagan Republican free market guy who got the Venture Capital Association to endorse industrial policy because they said there's not enough venture capital. Um, and then you look at sort of the emerging conservative, meaning Liberal Party and Republican leaders, uh, love them or hate them, in New South Wales, the most dynamic young politician is championing climate policies and, yeah. and climate-friendly energy policies in this state. You know, the biggest Republican winner in the midterms was the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who some people say is mini-Trump, some people say he's smarter than Trump, but people are also saying he was, as a governor of Florida, pretty serious about climate policies, invested a lot of money and time. A lot of great things for rooftop solar. Yeah, so um, a lot of good sun in Florida too. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting because you're seeing conservative politics when you look at the next generation of, legion, of leaders also talking about it very, very differently, which is encouraging. I mean, that sort of points to convergence maybe. It, it's it's ex exactly as Lachlan says, they, they're the people that can see that it's an industrial, it, because of the failure to actually um, prepare a, a, us for um, this sort of um, economic change at, mm. the, at, the, at the speed with which it's going to be necessary, um, particularly given in the Australian case, we're actually feeling the impacts of climate yeah. already. And therefore, a lot of the types of actions that we're going to have to take are ones which have resilience as well as um, mitigation mm. um, benefits. And I think the other thing over the history of the time that I've been working in this area, it we 15 years ago we thought Waxman Markey we'd be able to do it through a carbon price, and that this sort of very avert um, intervention in the economy was not going to be the way in which we would deal with it. Um, and similarly here in Australia, in both cases, it the the, the economist's dream turned out to not to be feasible politically and so this journey through to um, a, a different way of engineering the same economic result is really where we're, we're both at I think yeah and I think carbon pricing showed itself to not just be a failure politically but I, but I think from a climate standpoint as well I mean you look at the EU and they have a cap and trade mechanism okay that sounds great but you know they're the price that they have in that in that system is orders of magnitude below the best estimates for a true social cost of carbon so when we've never gotten close to what that would really look like and it's not a coincidence that Tesla came out of America it didn't come out of Europe and it was as I say the DOE loan program office fundamentally an instrument of industrial policy that really, you know, catered the way for Tesla to uh, to innovate and and really disrupt the the car market. That wouldn't have happened on the margin, which is fundamentally how carbon pricing works. And now Elon Musk is showing his appreciation of the Democratic Party at Twitter, right? <laughs> um, and and I, I would say here in Australia, you know, in the absence of a carbon price, the introduction of interventions like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency have done the same sort of, had the same sort of impact in being able to drive forward technology and drive down the costs and actually create these industries um, with very, very direct in interventions, yeah. but actually the, to, to great benefit. And at really, when you look at it, um, the CFC pays for itself um, and it actually makes makes profit. And um, Arena has uh, overall only cost us about $2 billion over 10 years. So that's a really a, an example of where um, 
that the costs of these sorts of interventions are actually very small mm. when they're very strategically done and very smart. And I think that's what we're seeing now with the IRA. It will um, be very, very targeted and, and very, very um, cleverly thought through. It's a, it, it, it's a really smart piece of policy, yeah. I think. Well, as Winston Churchill reportedly said, you can count on the Americans to make the right decision after they've made all the wrong decisions. <laughs> and um, the, the, the trend we're talking about is encouraging. We, we see, uh, I think we agree, convergence between the left and the right in both the US and Australia and convergence between the US and Australia at, 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 at state government um, uh, bilateral levels. Perhaps not the far right. In either, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. no, I mean, look, when you read the, the far left and far right on climate in the US, it's as polarized as ever. But the IRA showed that the, the, the middle's getting bigger. Um, the question is, is it enough? <laughs> and uh, let me turn to the last uh, uh, issue for us before we open it to the audience. Um, given everything we've discussed, what would you put on the agenda? What would you advise Prime Minister Albanese or President Biden in a bilateral context to, 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 to do on this subject at Osman in a few weeks um, and in the Quad Summit coming up next year, G20 and so forth? What, what, would, what can the US and Australia as allies do uh, in this space to make progress? Yeah, go ahead, Megan. Well, I was just going to say, the, uh, since the um, Albanese government has been in power, we, we've actually signed two big agreements with mm -hmm. the United States, all based on technology cooperation and this um, strategic investment, but particularly in um, renewables and um, uh, battery uh, precursors and, and and also direct air capture of all things. Mm. Um, so um, there's uh, already an agenda being set out there, um, which it hasn't really been made mm. public as, a, as a, um, an agreement, but it is actually very, very clearly an agenda built on making this an integral component of our overall alliance. Mm. And so, um, and that's, that's um, Minister Bowen's words around what, what that means. So I think it's already there as a mm. central part of the um, agenda. And um, I think making sure that we've got that close-knit cooperation, particularly where it's investment um, it between that's going to be mutually beneficial yeah. um, and knitting together those supply chains is going to be really the, the most important thing uh, that I would be looking for to get out of that agenda. That's good. Yeah, so I hundred percent agree with everything Meg just said. And I just add, I sort of see three buckets here for, for how to think about US Australia climate cooperation. The first is, well, what can we do from a uh, climate change perspective, just to maximize the amount of emissions we abate. Um, and to me, the key things there first and foremost is coal. Right, coal is, coal is the the dirtiest fuel, and it's the fuel we need to get uh, to phase out of the fastest. And I think here Australia is still a real laggard. Um, you know, just yesterday the G20 announced this Indonesia uh, Just Energy Transition Initiative, twenty billion dollars worth of grants and loans to Indonesia to help them get off coal. Conspicuously absent from that agreement was Australia. The U.S. was a part of it. Uh, so I think that's an area where Australia really needs to step up. Obviously, the political liabilities are a big issue, understood, but, uh, you know, facts are facts. 
Um, second key area where we need to work on is these hard to abate sectors. So that's about a fifth of global emissions. We're talking steel, cement, fertilizer, uh, these, these sorts of uh, very energy intensive sectors. And here too, Australia, I think is behind the eight ball uh, for me, one of the most uh, important initiatives in this space is the First Mover Coalition, which is a bunch of governments and companies saying we're going to be the early market in, you know, innovative technologies for green steel, green cement and so on. Again, Australia isn't really a part of that. Fortescue and Rio Tinto are, so some Australian companies are, are involved, um, but not, not the Australian government yet. And the third area is innovation. And here Australia uh, is, is playing its part. Mission innovation to me is the sort of key forum there. The second bucket of, uh, of areas is, is ones we've already spoken about. And I think that's the regional alliances, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China. So Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, G20, APEC, uh, and so on. And then the third is the, the bilateral engagements, where it's really, as we've spoken about a lot today, you know, what are the pragmatic problems that need to be solved. And here there's a bunch of areas where I think Australia and the US face really similar problems, right? Transmission being a really big one. Bowen likes to say we can't have a transition without transmission. And, you know, they're aiming for, I think, 10,000 kilometers of, of new transmission lines across the country. Uh, I mean, that's just, it's a huge task. And we're seeing, you know, the potato farmers in, in Victoria, like how much of a challenge it is to obtain, you know, this so-called social license uh, to build these these lines in people's backyards. People don't want big, ugly power lines in their back, backyards. And so that's, that's gonna be really difficult. And fundamentally, you can't get the solar from where it comes from to where it's consumed without transmission. And the US faces exactly the same problems, you know, with permitting reform and, and so on. And so I think that's an area where if we can figure out best practices and share those, that would be, be really important. Um, and then there are areas where, you know, Australia's a uh, leader in rooftop solar. One in four households in Australia have solar panels on their roof. Uh, the US is way, way behind on this front. This is, this is an area where Australia has really sort of pragmatic advice that I think it can, can share with its US counterparts. Um, on the inverse, uh, the US is way out ahead of us on things like EV charging infrastructure, um, smart grid technologies. Uh, and so I think these are areas where we could really benefit from you know, really targeted uh, forums for, for sharing best practices with utilities, with local governments and so on. And, um, and so I think that's where, as, uh, as Meg was just saying, we're, we're starting to see these very technologically specific partnerships develop. And that's where I think a lot of the action is going to be going forward. Can I add yeah. one more to that is cybersecurity, because actually as we move to this decentralised grid and um, the, the, and the multiple generation sources, actually cybersecurity is one of the biggest challenges yeah. that we um, are going to be facing with managing this, this whole network of technologies, let alone the fact that we um, will be moving into more autonomous vehicles and so really our systems are more vulnerable. That's a whole mm. huge area that I think is ripe for the kind of collaboration that Australia and the United States do, do best. Well, you've given the US Study Centre and the audience a really rich agenda to think about for the coming year. I, I'd add one more quickly and get your thoughts. Meg, you may recall, and Lachlan, you as well, that during the Obama administration in APEC and other fora, there was discussion of a green goods and services agreement. Now, this gets back to the, to the tariff reduction approach to trade agreements that you and I grew up with. But I would think in IPEF, a real mark of success, if the US Trade Representative's Office, the Biden administration, can get over its TPP allergy, a real mark of success would be if we had in that 
um, pillar of IPEF, um, actual reduction of tariffs for green goods and services to really encourage exactly this kind of technology transfer, investment, and trade. I, I don't rule it out myself. I, don't, I wouldn't bet on it in the next year, but my view is that trade politics in the U.S. are not locked in stone. Our surveys show that 60% of Americans supported, said TPP was a good idea. Um, problem is, ironically, most of them are Democrats. Republicans used to be the party of free trade. But when you ask just generically in our survey, should the United States do more to promote trade and investment in the Indo-Pacific, you get very high numbers, including people who voted for President Trump. So it's all about how you frame it. Mm -hmm. And I would think in IPEF, there's a, there's a shot at that kind of, uh, of, of progress because reducing barriers to trade and, uh, and in, in goods and services in this area would spur cooperation I, I, I totally agree, but I think the other area, particularly in this um, opening up of trade, is around um, um, uniform standards and yeah. re really being able to accelerate the um, uh, modernisation of standards yeah, across that's... areas. Because that acceptance, um, a large part of the process and the cost of actually um, rolling out a lot of these technologies is the approval processes that you have to go to, through across different um, geographies and also um, the testing and being able to do something to actually speed that up and uh, to, to make sure that we have that greater recognition would actually be much more beneficial not only for the producers, mm. but very definitely for the consumers. And that's politically easier than traditional market access yes, yep. type agreements. Yep. Yeah. I would just add, I think the w, WTO is part of the problem here. You know, their focus on, again, finding global consensus, reaching, uh, you know, you know t lowering tariff barriers across the board has really held them back on things like regional trade agreements, yep. where um, the Indo-Pacific economic framework is what it should be aiming for, where, as you say, you harmonize regulatory standards within the framework and you say, if you meet these standards, then we will reduce tariffs in these environmental goods. But um, my impression is that the WTO would frown uh, on that. And so I think that really holds back IPEF and similar arrangements abilities to be flexible and to encourage, uh, you know, to have that carrot as well as the the, the stick here. And um, and so I think the, the WTO needs to reform just as much as, uh, you know, the UN framework on climate change. Unless you used an environmental exception. Well, then we're getting into... Which was actually the thing that got me out of trade into environment. <laughs> Interesting. Well, look, we're describing um, in some ways the failures of governmental and intergovernmental organizations designed with 1950s software <laughs> um, and why so much of the innovation is happening in the other areas we've discussed. Let me open it up and see if people in the audience want to make observations or ask questions. I think we have, yeah, a microphone. Um, uh, pretty broad agenda, actually, so... Um, uh, fair game anywhere uh, in uh, the topics we've discussed. Please, could you quickly tell us who you are? And Hello, I'm Matt. Uh, as a, I talk about this with friends quite often going, people saying, oh, we need to do more, we need to do more. Yeah. How much is on the individual person or the consumer as opposed to the cooperation? Like me changing my lifestyle in quite small, insignificant ways compared to a large corporation actually making significant difference. Does my little difference actually help? Or is it really, at this point, it's not up to me. It is up to the higher-ups to actually be doing their jobs properly. My vegetarian 12-year-old daughter reminds me every time I have a steak that I'm hurting the climate, <laughs> the environment. So yeah, it is individual, I think. But what do you, what do you respond? Um, I like the way that uh, 
the Australian uh, engineer slash climate advocate Saul Griffith thinks about this. He, he wrote a book called One Billion Machines. So essentially to decarbonize uh, the world economy, um, sorry, I think it's the US economy, we need to replace one billion machines that use fossil fuels with one billion machines that are overwhelmingly electrified. Now, a lot of those machines are going to be held by utilities, right? They're coal-fired power plants, uh, gas stations, and so on. But a lot of those machines are, are what consumers buy. So the next time you buy a stove, make it electric, don't make it gas. The next time you buy a car, try and get an EV, you know, Part of that is corporations and government incentives to make those EVs and electric stoves affordable. Um, the next time you renovate your house, think about uh, you know an electric heating system and an electric um, uh, yeah heat pump exactly, and putting rooftop solar panels on your house. So really, it's about the machines that we buy as opposed to the uh, you know the plastic bags that we that we use from a climate change perspective. That's obviously important from a, an environment and sustainability perspective. But I really think about who are the the actors that are making decisions around the these big machines, energy consuming machines, and that's fundamentally uh, where the real climate action is. I. I'd agree with that. I think it takes both and um, it's some of the, the, the shift to renewable energy, for instance, that's the sing single biggest thing that we can do to um, decarbonise the system. But there's still a whole bunch of some of the areas that um, Lachlan mentioned earlier. But it comes down to um, what a whole bunch of individual choices making a market and therefore um, that, that responsibility for individual choice whether it's when you're buying your appliance or whether it's the way you're buying your packaging or the food, the food that you're buying or even the way in which you're travelling. Um, to If you're making those choices, if a million of us make the same choices, then it makes a big difference and the, the, the market is created and it becomes a self-fulfilling circle. But And I would just add that eventually we want to reach the point where you don't have to make the decision on sort of climate change grounds, right? Like the reason Tesla is successful is because they make faster cars, not Great because cars. They, they make uh, greenhouse gas free cars, right? They're, they're, um, and so I think that's going to be true uh, of, a, of a wider range of options. So eventually we're going to reach the point where you go to McDonald's and you can get the Beyond Beef quarter pounder and it's going to be cheaper than the regular beef quarter pounder. And at that point, people are going to make that decision because uh, you know, and it's a pocketbook decision. It's not a, I'm doing my bit for the climate decision. Although the branding doesn't hurt Tesla, right? I mean, at no. least where I come from in Washington, D.C. or Maryland or Virginia, people who drive Teslas like them because they're fast and cool, but there's a certain amount of prestige and branding to it as well, don't you think? And it sells, in other words. You can sell, uh, you can sell sure. this. Sure, uh, but he's, he's very actively getting into the pickup truck market. He's very actively moving his next gigafactory into Tex uh, Texas because uh, he knows, you know, it, Republicans buy cars too. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the way, way to do that is to sell them on, uh, you know, the, uh, the specs of the car rather than, yeah, you know, the specs point. of its exhaust pipe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I knew that te Teslas were going to be huge when uh, a driver that we were using was pulling uh, a Tesla brochure out of his glove box, <laughs> talking to my bo then boss about how fast this car went. Now, I had been looking at a Tesla as being, you know, the EV climate solution. The, the driver was into, this is the experience of a lifetime. Never had anything hmm. like this for, for a, a rev head. So um, I knew then that 
that was going to be the thing that would actually Interesting. take it through. This through is in Sydney? Yeah. I've been driving in Sydney for three months. I haven't had that many opportunities to drive fast yet. No, well, that, well exactly, exactly. It's the takeoff speed. Yeah, please. Hi, I'm Phil Frost. Um, we've had more than 20 years of uh, renewable, renewables denial at, at federal level and, and state level, I think. And it, it's basically led to 20 years of failure to put together any coherent policy around you know, how to transition and what we need to run a network and, and a transmission system uh, that's going to pick up all this you know, diffuse rooftop solar and, and anything else. How do you go about addressing that and, and what happens and how long is it going to take before we get a national um, credible uh, energy policy for, for renewables? Um, well, I think as I, I, I would agree with you that um, it's been a decade of, or 15 years of um, stop-start, but in fact, what I w would argue now is that each of the states has taken this responsibility and have developed their own plans. Um, the um, new federal government now, with its repowering Australia and um, the, uh, the transmission fund uh, and the other funds that, that it's setting up, is piecing together something which, which will complement that. But I think the thing that is, is missing is market regulatory reform, which will actually speed that up. Right now, the kind of market mechanisms that we set up with the, with the uh, national energy market are actually acting to slow this process down and forcing it to fragment. And people are going around it through um, big firms actually um, doing their own PPAs and funding their, their own sources of renewable energy when the actual market wasn't providing it. So um, do we have a coherent market? We will have, um, and I actually think that blueprint is there now. It's just gonna be a bumpy ride to get there because of the speed with which we now actually have to do this, particularly the transmission piece of it. The, the, the point I suppose I'm, I'm driving at is that in the absence of um, a coherent national policy framework, it's very, very difficult for investors to come in and put their money into something because what you, the last thing you want to have is one policy in Queensland, another policy in South Australia, which don't overlap and become impediments to investment for somebody who wants to make big leaks of investment and then find that actually that won't work over here but it does work there and then that market's too small. So you get another set of impediments to, to investment which is ultimately where all of this needs to um, where the rubber hits the road. I mean, you're, you're right, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen these big plays for the existing the incumbents um, as, a, as a way for big money like Brookfield to come in and actually be able to, to um, uh, fast track this process. But um, it's not perfect, but I think we're, we're moving towards that, and particularly the kind of big auctions that the, state, the New South Wales state government has been doing for the renewable energy zones is designed exactly to create that sort, sort of framework contractually so that no other government is going to come in and, and change, can change that. And the New South Wales government's a Liberal government. 
a Labor government is only going to be uh, looking to do this faster than, than um, the, the current government. So I, I, I accept your point that it's not, it, it's, it's not perfect, but I think the, the market is playing out in a way that investors are really finding it, it um, a, a very attractive place to be. I'll just add that I think we've hit some really important inflection points where you know, a lot of these technologies are now cost competitive in the way that they just weren't 10, 20 years ago, right? As I mentioned, solar's fallen in price by 90% in the last 10 years. So, you know, the first utility scale solar uh, plant in the US was only built in 2010. So we're still very, very early into figuring out what this looks like. It's a totally different uh, energy system when it's distributed uh, with highly concentrated, you know, consumer centers. Um, and I think, you know, the IRA uh, and the, the technology changes really put us at this point where it goes from being something where governments had to fight against industry to something where industry is really pushing for this. Where decarbonisation is now seen as inevitable, it's a matter of how fast rather than, you know, if. And so I think that fundamentally changes uh, the, the sort of dynamic around industry pressure, you know, how quickly we're, ex we're going to see regulatory change and how much investors are going to want to get into this space. And that regulatory change is really looking to lower the cost rather than uh, because the current regula regulations actually f force it at a higher cost than it can actually be. But I do think the big thing that unites um, where there's a whole lot of things to be learned which is what you mentioned, Lachlan, is the big asset of rooftop solar and really how that can actually play in a new energy system. I think we've got a lot that we can actually um, learn from um, the individual US states where, which have very, very high levels of solar penetration like California about how we can actually cooperate to uh, understand the technologies that it takes to actually orchestrate um, and use the, those resources in ways that we... Um, are still experimenting with. I think we'll also look back and see Russia's invasion of Ukraine as an inflection point here as well, honestly, where, you know, if you look at the 1970s oil crisis, there was a step shift in uh, energy consumed per capita in developed countries. We figured out how to be much more energy efficient because we didn't have alternative technologies. We just had to figure out ways to tighten our belt with the, with the existing technologies we had. Today, now that we're seeing, you know, similar, not quite the same, but similar disruptions in global energy markets, we have alternatives, right? We can build out wind and solar. We can, you know, we've got some of the energy storage solutions, still not the long duration energy storage solutions that we need. And so I think the acceleration in clean energy uptake um, it's just going to be dramatic from here and I really think we're going to look at this particular period in time, the combination of significant US action and Russia's invasion in, uh, in Ukraine as being the moment where we, we saw, saw a real step shift. Other questions? Please. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Helmut. Um, my question is that you've spoken a lot about industrial policy that's kind of carrot-esque. Um, what role, if any, do you see the stick coming into play? I mean, ideally there would be sticks to accompany the carrots. It's just politically very difficult. And in environments where you're able to do it politically, such as California, you know, with um, vehicle emission standards, uh, I think is, is a good area where we, we've seen 
dramatic Im improvements. Um, a stat that blew me away the other day is that there's more carbon emissions in California from leaf blowers and lawn mowers than there is from cars. And that's because there are, there are uh, vehicle efficiency standards on internal combustion engine motors in vehicles, but not for the two-stroke engines you use for your lawnmowers. So that's an example where those sticks and regulatory standards have really worked. And so I think Australia, you know, is a case where, uh, you know, we, we don't have a manufacturing industry uh, in, in cars. So that sort of uh, changes the political dynamic a little bit. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a sector by sector figuring out where is this politically possible and, and how can we, we intervene. Um, ideally, there'd be, there'd be a range of areas. But my first sort of approach to this is what can we get away with politically? Let's, and if it's just carrots, fine. Let's send them lots of carrots until it becomes cost competitive and then the market will do the rest. And there's a whole lot of other areas of um, stick that we uh, could use but don't. I mean, one that's um, coming up for, is for industry in uh, across the board through the safeguards mechanism and really looking at ways of um, forcing industry to put that carbon price in and um, make, make plans to actually decarbonise because it basically forces forward the investment decisions around um, uh, new technologies that they uh, and new processes that they have to deal with. Another area where the stick counts is actually in efficiency standards and particularly in the building sector, which um, no government of any colour has had very much appetite to actually um, do to the extent that will be necessary to get us to be um, have climate positive buildings. But the, we will be forced into that, and I think that that's um, an area where, particularly in Australia, we're technology takers rather than technology um, makers. And so that's also going to be, the faster that happens in overseas markets, then the more, the, the easier it is for us to actually force that take up here in Australia too. One stick that I would add that I think is a, is a no-brainer is methane emissions and methane leakages. You know, Australia is a big gas producer. There's way more um, um, methane leakage from gas production than than we uh, had originally estimated. We're seeing you know these flyover technology drones, satellites uh, capturing the amount of methane leakage in these um, gas production facilities. Methane, I think it's four times more potent than carbon as a greenhouse gas in the short term. So it's really, really important uh, that, you know, one of our short term priorities is reducing methane emissions. And there's really no excuse for these sorts of leakages in these, these facilities. And I think there's a growing consensus around what those standards look like and how to, to crack down on them. And so I think that's an area where, where sticks are really starting to, to play an important role as well. And it, it, it's in fact technology that's come out of the US around um, from the, both the, the satellites but also the, this drone measurement that's really highlighting in a more granular way where these methane uh, so, uh, diffuse sources are and where you, you, you really need to be accounting for them by pinning them down to individual facilities rather than actually um, fugitive emissions that we can't measure. And the Environmental Protection Agency in the US has a lot of sticks. And the Clean Water Act and so forth, there's lots and lots of stakes, uh, not necessarily about emissions per se, it's all around, around pollution and goes, some of these bills go back to the 1970s and 80s. There's a lot of sticks out there. Um, I think the politics got stuck because, because you know, sticks were dividing um, uh, the Congress and the Parliament. And, and carrots now offer more 
significant solutions. But even in California, that stick is, a, the, the emissions control, California's market is too big. So car producers have to produce to that standard. So some of the sticks, even if they're not federal, if it's a big state like California, set the, yeah, set the standard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, they, and For, then, the, then the producers go and say, um, make this national because we yeah. want to be able to yeah. operate. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, let's do one more. Yeah, please, in the back. This is a question from Pam Drysdale, who's watching online. Uh, is there a place for nuclear, nuclear energy? Great question, and I look forward to the answers. <laughs> Pam, there's there's always one. Every one of these is always there's always a, a nuclear energy question. Um, look, I think nuclear absolutely has to be on the table. It's a zero carbon um, firm energy source. And that's really, really uh, important because, you know, if the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, you need that firm power. And as I say, we don't have those long duration energy storage solutions yet. So and firm power means the base load correct. For, for, for power plants. You can't rely on solar, wind, or renewables for that base load when the weather changes, right, generally? Or is that changing? It's changing okay. too, but yeah. 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 Um, we don't talk baseload anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, dating, um, I'm dating myself. And so in the US where they have existing nuclear power plants, like in Illinois, um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act did include a bunch of incentives to keep those plants online. That's really, really important. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to see all sorts of interesting things like pink hydrogen. So hydrogen produced using nuclear power uh, in those areas, which is going to be interesting to watch. But fundamentally, if you look at the last nuclear power plant built in the US, it was uh, in Georgia. I think it ended up costing about $8 billion overran its budget and time estimates by years. And so, you know, until I see nuclear power being built at speed and at uh, a cost that's, you know, even ballpark comparable to the, the types of um, costs we're seeing for renewable energy projects, it's really hard for me to see it as a, um, as a solution. Uh, in Australia, you know, my cynical view of what we're seeing out of the, the LNP is that this is a, another delay tactic for them by bringing up nuclear. It's a way to, to set up a, a task force that'll deliver a report that nobody will read and then they get to kick the can down the road for a few years. Um, because, you know, Australia politically is incredibly opposed to nuclear and I, I don't see that changing soon. Even if you tried, it would take at least a decade to come up with the sort of robust regulatory framework to do it. Um, you know, where there is some hope is in what are called advanced small modular nuclear reactors. Um, and so this could potentially bypass some of those safety and, and regulatory concerns. Um, very, very early stages for this technology. I think there was news today out of one of the first ones being built in Utah that it too is going to go well over, over budget and over cost. So again, I'll believe it when I see it. Theoretically, I'm very on board. Um, but, you know, day in, day out, we're seeing new solar and wind energy projects being built. The only nuclear projects being built are backed by the Chinese and, and Russians. And those are for geopolitical reasons, not economic ones. Yeah. And I wouldn't really have any um, more to add than that other than one of the, the costs for, particularly for Australia, is we just don't have the technical backup and uh, an industry base to actually support um, a nuclear industry at this point. And so that just adds to the whole costs. And the cost, if you look at any cost curve for um, uh, solar and wind in Australia, mm. our land is cheap. Um, we have uh, huge opportunities and we've got a skilled, skilled workforce base um, growing um, even as we speak, um, which is only going to drive those costs down uh, lower. 
So it's really a race, I think, for um, the, um, the nuclear industry um, be because if the build-out of renewables is such and the grid and the transmission and the storage um, pieces are all there, then there, there won't be mm. a need for this baseload anymore mm. and, and therefore um, the, the, the question becomes really academic. Maybe at some stage in the future it's part of a portfolio mix but it's really a long, long way into the future. And the, the interesting thing about solar, uh, sorry, nuclear is nuclear's costs have gone up since the 70s. As I, as I say, solar, wind, these are on exponential, uh, you know, cost curves down. And so it's really hard for, you know, it's not competitive today and it's, it's only going to be less competitive tomorrow. So, um, you know, it's interesting, 10 years ago, um, this issue, climate, was probably the area of greatest friction between the US and Australia. Um, but what we're hearing today is as daunting as the challenges are, it, it, it's an area of conversion and there may not be many countries as closely aligned on the way forward or the way we've gotten here as the US and Australia. So this has been a rich conversation. Um, I want to thank Meg and Lachlan and all of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.